The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning, everyone. If you don't have a Bible of your own, um, please use the one in the pew back in front of you. And if you're using that Bible, it's um, our our chapter for today, Ecclesiastes 7, is on page 521, 521. And if you don't have your own Bible, please take that Bible um, from us as a gift from Park Church. So Ecclesiastes 7, beginning at verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. 
He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among, among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, Park Church. My name is Neil. I serve as one of the pastors here. Um, and we are at the, the halfway point in Ecclesiastes. So we're six weeks in. Uh, this is the, the turning point, even in the book, even in the, the way that he, the preacher is, is arguing in the text. Um, and yeah, we got six more today and five more weeks, and then we'll, we'll t- turn toward Advent. But let me, let me pray for us. Let's invite Jesus to, to speak to us where we are uh, today. Uh, Father, thank you for the, the gift that it is to gather as your people. That even just to, to be able to declare in this room, uh, to sing these truths about who you are, knowing that uh, each of us as individuals, we came in today carrying different sorrows, different joys, different burdens, different excitements, just a, a mix of so many different things. And, and you're the God who is, is sovereign over all of it. You're the God who's able to, to see the particulars of our hearts and our stories. Uh, you, you carry these burdens on our behalf. You're with us in it. And then we're able to come together as your people to be reminded of who you are, to declare things that maybe we don't even feel to be true in these moments, but have it to wash over us. And so may that be the reality for us today. May we receive the wisdom from your word that you have for us. Now, we, we know, we know that you're present with us. But we ask that you would make that presence so known to us. For each of us in this space, over the next handful of minutes that we have together, walking through this text, walking through the rest of the service, we invite you in. We ask you to speak. Would you give us what we need and speak what only you can speak to us? pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a handful of weeks ago, uh, late September, there was a uh, a football game between the Chicago Bears and the Kansas City Chiefs, and there was a woman in attendance at this game. Um, a medical doctor, in fact, physician, a surgeon, a well-known surgeon in her community. Um, she had performed many life-saving surgeries. She was a, a leader in research, had many mentees under her. She was published. She was like well-known in this community and happened to attend this game. Um, she also happened to be wearing a jersey. Uh, it, was a, it was a Chris Jones jersey, if you're familiar with the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, He's a defensive player, uh, I think got injured in that game or one around it, uh, but, but very, uh, very instrumental to the success of the Chiefs, like a you know, fairly prominent, if you watch NFL games, you probably hear his name from time to time, seen some of his plays. Um, but the, the oddest thing happened after that game. Um, she, she wore the jersey, she's well-known, very successful in her field, uh, and, and yet after the game, there was no noticeable difference in jersey sales for Chris Jones after the game. None. Like his merchandise, it just it stayed exactly the same as before the game to after the game. Well-known woman, very successful. There's another woman at this same game, also fairly well-known, uh, fairly successful in her field as well. 
Uh, but she, she's not a surgeon, not a, not a, not a doctor, um, but rather a phenomenal lyricist, uh, singer-songwriter, performer. Uh, I think she had a movie just come out, perhaps, but it was a rerun of something that happened in, on stage before. I don't know. I, the details are a little fuzzy. Um, but she also wore a jersey of, of a different player, an offensive player, um, a tight end named Travis Kelsey. And, and he's also very instrumental to the success, of the success of the team. He's not necessarily like the, you know, he's not Patrick Mahomes. But I think he's Ma'ato Ma now. Is that the commercial? Not Mahomes, Ma'ato. Um, but Travis Kelsey's uh, number and name were, were on the jersey of, of this woman who attended the game. And it, it didn't happen with the first woman, but after this woman wore that jersey, his merchandise sales went up by 400%. Jersey sales, he went from, I don't know, 150th or something up to the top five, just like that, like overnight, because a single person wore a jersey to a game and some other people saw it. And of course, this woman's name is Taylor Swift. We all know, we've probably seen it. Uh, maybe you're into football now and you weren't before, but all of a sudden, like the Chiefs are your favorite team and you've got a jersey of some guy you never heard of before. Uh, this this phenomenon has just baffled me over the past several weeks, and I've been kind of sitting on it. And I think it's really relevant to the text we're looking at today. Because there, there's, a, there's a human longing that every one of us has to, to secure the good life. We might even say we want the path to wisdom. What's the, what's the path to, to kind of getting the right way to live, to secure the things that I desire, that I want? I want to feel happy. I want to feel joy. I want to feel peace. I want to be successful. And, and for us, it, it looks different for each of us. We're kind of scanning the horizon of those around us or those that we can see through a screen or those that, that we're aware of and say, if they appear to be living this kind of happy, good life that I want, they must have figured out the path of wisdom or at least aspects of it. So I can't be them, but maybe I can like pull aspects of their life and put it onto mine, and then I can participate in some of that same life, that same path to wisdom. It's been said before that we have, as we look at kind of the humans around us, there are our lives that we admire, and there are lives that we desire. And, and maybe, you're, maybe you're not a Swifty. I did get accused last service of being a Swifty. I don't know if it's an accusation or something to celebrate. I don't know, but... Um, I will say, I did become convinced of her lyric genius about a year ago. Like one of her songs happened to come on the radio, and I was like, huh, what's this? And I was like, that's actually really good. So I don't know if I'm a Swifty, but I can give honor where honor is due. Um, but, but all of us have kind of this grab bag of who, who are the people around us that are living a certain type of life? And we, we, we kind of latch on to aspects of their life. It could be their fashion, the jersey they're wearing, the hairstyle, the way they walk, uh, the, the habits they have, the career that they pursue. You know, if they're successful in a certain area, it's like, how'd you get there? I want to kind of read your book and follow the same path that you did. All of us are hungry for a path of wisdom. We often don't call it that. But subtly, implicitly, we're, we're, we're taking these directives from other people, no matter how they come to us and say, I want aspects of that life. So I want to I I get closer to that person and that way of living. And a lot of times, we're not even concerned about the substance of our own lives. If we can just appear to other people to, to, to be that kind of person, if they can receive us that way and approve of us, 
And, and kind of, when they look at our life and say, wow, they, they're the kind of person that, that gets it. They're the kind of person who's successful. They're the kind of person that I want to be around. They're, they're, they're this kind of respectful, honorable, like th- that's the kind of human that I approve of. Uh, social critic and author uh, Tara Isabella Burton, she put it this way, that the message today is often something like this. We only can build, we not only can, but should customize and create and curate every facet of our lives to reflect our inner truth. We are all enthralled to the seductive myth that we are supposed to become our best selves. Further, self-invention is as much about shaping people's perceptions of you as it is about changing anything about yourself. So often, the, the cultural narrative, the societal expectation is not become a person of substance and wisdom, but be perceived as a certain type of human to, to get the job, to have the right group of friends, to get the date, to get the promotion, to get the likes, to be, to be received by those people or that group of people or that individual or whoever else. Not only concerned about substance, but can we present something? Can we posture in a certain kind of way? And we pursue it through so many different avenues. And really, the first half of Ecclesiastes, if you've been around for, for any of those weeks, it's, uh, it's kind of like what, what G- Eugene Peterson talks about. So this, this Hebrew word of hevel, which can tr- translate it as, as vanity or vapor or meaninglessness, it's kind of a catch-all. Like we're grasping at different things, but we really can never get a hold of it. Often they're really good things, but we're asking them to do more than what they actually can do for us. That's to give us a genuine hope that survives. And Eugene Peterson, uh, he said, in talking about this, this book and that word, this idea of hevel, it's like the preacher in Ecclesiastes uses hevel as like this little broom to sweep away our illusions. So all the places that, that we, we kind of willingly self-deceive, we, we buy into the lie, we think this is where the good life is going to come. We take the created things of this world and try to construct some sense of meaning and web of reality, and if other people can buy into it, then we're all kind of participating in the same lie, and it's, it actually kind of feels kind of good because we're approving of one another. A preacher is saying, hey, let, let, me, let me go over here into this corridor and just kind of brush that away. And then let me go over to this side over here, and I'm going to brush that away. The, the assumptions that you have, eventually, you're going to realize that you're grasping at something that can never give you the satisfaction that you long for, the joy that you want, the substance that you want. It will eventually disappoint. And he's saying it's good that you learn this early and as often as you can. So if our longing is for some path of wisdom in this life. Well, what does the preacher in Ecclesiastes have to say about it? Now, here at this turning point, he's basically saying, as I've walked you through these different corridors and tried to brush away your illusions, um, now I'm going to turn and and give you what the path of wisdom actually includes. And even that, we'll find, is, is full of some disillusionment. But let's look together. Ecclesiastes 7, starting verse 1. We're going to walk through this text together. I encourage you, if you you have a Bible, open it up, phone, whatever else. We're going to work through this text and see what we have, what what God has for us today. That was Taylor Swift, wasn't it? Just just too inspired. Um, All right, verse 1, Ecclesiastes 7. A good name is better than precious ointment. A good name is better than precious ointment. See, in, in, in... 
most cultures throughout the history of the world, showers were not like a thing that people did. Like maybe bathe, maybe once a week. And so the, the regular like human stench was just a part of life. But if you had money, if you had some degree of, of wealth, then you could, you could get these perfumes and these ointments and you could put them on yourself. And so at least you had kind of the aura of being presentable. Now, all of us at the party are like thanking you for putting on the ointment, right? It's like, oh, thank you. I don't necessarily want to smell your unbathed body. I'd rather smell the ointment. This is not a, not a terrible thing. Um, obviously, we, we still use perfume today. But it's saying that a good name is better than that. Why? Because a good name is a reputation that's rooted in reality. It's actually a portrayal of the person, of the self, that, that is consistent with the substance that's on the interior. So, so people receive us as we are. Uh, people can, can watch our lives and be in relationship with us and see us and say, oh, you don't just have kind of the external trappings of, of somebody I might approve of. You're actually a person of depth. Uh, there's something in the interior life. A good name is better than just having the facade, just the external that people may enjoy about you. Then he takes it a step further. It's a hard word. Middle of verse 1. And the day of death than the day of birth. He's saying the day of death is better than the day of birth. Another way to, to, to translate this would be a funeral is better than a birthday party. But I've been to especially lately, a lot of birthday parties, uh, mostly for humans that are under the age of seven. And, it's, you know, there's buoyancy, there's energy, there's excitement, there's some sort of crazy activity that the sugar intake is always like beyond what is healthy, but you deal with that later. Um, there, there's so much positivity in, in thinking about, okay, what's ahead? Another trip around the sun? Look, what, we're just so thankful for this person's life. There's goodness in birthday parties, absolutely, to, to celebrate the joy of that. I've also been to a couple of funerals over the past month, eight days apart last month. It was at two different funerals uh, for, for families in this community, at our church, many of you know uh, even quite well. So when I come to this text, even, even studying it and preparing for this sermon, on the heels of that, and my soul wants to say, no. No, a funeral is not better than a birthday party. I, I, I've, I've sat and wept with those who are mourning the loss of someone in their family. Just recently, to be at a funeral where, where, where the sorrow and the mourning is just inexplicable. And the preacher has the audacity to say, the funeral is actually better than the birthday party. He goes on in verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. How can he say these things? Well, he grounds it. Look in the middle of verse 2, 4. He doesn't want to look for the fours and the therefores. 4, this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Now, he's not saying that death is better than life. He's not saying that it's, it's actually better all around to, to, to have a funeral than it is for a day of birth or for a birthday party or the celebration and the excitement that comes around those things. No, Scripture always calls us to name what is evil, evil, what is not good, to call it not good, and what is good, we celebrate. 
What he is saying is that it's better in this way. It allows us, it forces us even, to wrap our arms around the fullness of human experience and human emotion. Because this is life under the sun. This is part of reality. This is part of the life and the, 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 the world that we live in. Death is a part of it, including our own. And he's saying it's far better to, 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 to be able to get our reach around the full spectrum of human experience and deal with that reality than to just skim off half of it and say, I just want to live on the happy side. I just kind of want to build a life in the, the spaces that, that feel really good. I just want to kind of go to the things that are joyful and celebratory. And he's saying, actually, the path of wisdom requires that we look death in the face. We look sorrow in the face. And we deal with that as a part of reality. It goes on, verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of, fa- of face the heart is made glad. The path of, of true joy actually comes through this. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Continues on, verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. So not only do we try to shove the hard realities of life to the margins, we also take the people who would tell us hard things, and we tend to shove them to the margins of our lives as well. It's like, oh, you, you would challenge my assumptions, you would challenge my beliefs, you would challenge my, 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 my desires, kind of the way that I want to live my life. You would say something hard to me. I, that's not a voice that I can hear. I wonder if we've, we've so absorbed kind of the broader cultural narrative that, that says something in the realm of, if you disagree with me, then you must hate me. If you're willing to say something hard to me that, that is contrary to what I want, then the, you, you, you must despise me. You certainly don't love me. You certainly don't care for me. And you're probably not someone that I should have in my life. Now, obviously, there, there are destructive ways to bring those voices into people's lives. We have to be wary of that. But simply, because someone would share with us something that's different than what we think, that would challenge us in where we are, we assume they're not loving us, but they're probably hating us. The preacher says, well, that, that's preferring the song of fools to the rebuke of a wise person. And he compares it to, to these thorns that are, that are burning underneath a pot. You know, in the ancient Near East, the, the thorns would be a, a pretty accessible means of fuel. That to get a fire going, it would quickly burn, uh, have this like irritating noise that, that would come off from it, this crackling sound. Um, then it'd be gone. It was very quickly gone. As soon as it burned, it, was, it, it, was, it had dissipated. He's saying that that's, that's when we just kind of get our, our buddies around us who are just going to applaud however we live, whatever we think, and never say anything that's different than what we actually want. It's like those thorns that are, that are just burning under the pot. And we continue down that path, and it takes us to some really dark places. You see in, in, in verse 7 that, that over time, if we're not listening to the voice of wisdom around us, we succumb to the temptations of, of power and of money. We begin excusing different behaviors and ways of living. We think, well, I'm, I'm just kind of listening to my own narrative and my own voice, and I'm not being challenged elsewhere. I've shoved everybody else to the side. And that's where we find ourselves. Then he goes on, verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Oh, sorry, verse 8, back up. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. 
Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Here this is where we're, we're so angsty for what's ahead that we can't pay attention to the moment in front of us. We're, we're so impatient thinking, well, what's next and how, what needs to change? And I can't be satisfied in this particular moment of the people around me and what God has invited me into and what, what's going on, what he might be teaching me. What invitation might stand before the God who made me? But rather, I've got to get here, and I've got to do it now. But then he challenges on the other side as well. Look in the next verse. Verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So some of us are, are tempted to just like get to the next. Let's change. Let's be better. Let's be in a different place. And we miss the present. We can also get to the other side and say, well, I remember a former season of my life a particular relationship, a particular stretch of years, a particular day. Or maybe we look to, to, a, to a decade in, in American history or somewhere else and say, that, that, that was kind of the golden period. Like that, that's where I was truly alive and I was appreciated and I, was, I, I felt like the fullness of life. And we want to kind of snow globe that thing and, and wrap it up and say, this is, this is where it's at. And the preacher says this hyper-nostalgia is also foolish. Because we're living absent of reality at this point. We're saying, back there, that's where the good life is. Actually, up ahead, I need to change everything now. Instead of saying, in the present moment, where the sovereign Lord has invited you into, he wants to speak something to you. He wants to invite something, invite you into something. Well, the joys or the sorrows, the, the mix between the two, there's something that he's doing in this moment, in this season, if we would but hear his voice. He goes on, verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So then, okay, a financial inheritance, like, like money, that's, that provides a degree of protection. Like when times are hard, times are difficult, uh, we have some sort of cushion that's allowed us to, you know, we got three months saved, six months saved, whatever else, or people in our life that have means to help us out. But even that has this vaporous quality. Money's here, it won't be here forever. It evaporates over time. But wisdom is even better than money because whatever comes our way, we're able to be rooted in the presence of God, attentive to the voice of our Father, and be able to navigate what's in front of us. It's been said before that the Christian need never be surprised by reality, need never be surprised by what comes. Because he's already told us, like, hey, difficulty is coming. The, the world is still under a curse. It's marked by sin and brokenness, and Christ has come. He will come again. We're in this in-between. You will have trouble. Don't be surprised by that. But it should always shock us. Because that's not the way it's supposed to be. It should always shock the system because we're like, well, hold on a second. Death is not the way that it's supposed to go. Dissolving of relationships, that, no, God has made us for, for unity, for perfect peace. When life unravels, yeah, that should shock us. But we need not be surprised because we know the God who has spoken to us. That this, this is life under the sun until he comes again. It goes on in verse 13. Consider the work of God, and this is him summarizing this bit on wisdom. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? You know, what often feels like crookedness to us, maybe accusing God of, of, of working, working in crooked ways, when in reality it's just our, our lived experience of it. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. 
God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. If you're in a season right now that's marked by relative joy and peace, like feeling just like a lot of gratitude naturally and the kindness of God is so evident in your life, there's no reason to feel ashamed of that or guilty for that, but receive it as a, as a gift of God and say, thank you. You know, if this, later this afternoon you're able to, to be outside and see the colors of the season, enjoy the warm weather and spend time with, with friends or with family, be thankful. God is the author of that. But let us not only allow our reach to extend to, to, the, to the happy moments, to the one that, ones that feel more prosperous. For wisdom says we have to reach around the full spectrum of human experience, of human emotion, because that is life under the sun. If we disregard that, we will destroy ourselves. We don't have to go looking for sorrow. It will come. And when it does, will we name it for what it is and allow our own grief to follow? We allow God to do his work in the midst of those things and not, not fall prey to the temptation to reject that, try to shove it out of our lives and just live upon the, the kind of upper half of life. All of it, the preacher says, is a part of life and a part of pursuing wisdom. Ian Provan said it this way, it is part of the, the wisdom one needs to live the good life that we should embrace forthrightly the fact of death Recognizing the brevity and preciousness of life, we should live life seriously. It doesn't mean to be grumpy. It doesn't mean to be hyper-pessimistic. But there should be a a sobriety with which we look at life and say, yeah, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. All of us are going to die at some point. Maybe it's this afternoon. Maybe it's 10 years from now. Maybe it's 60 years from now. But it will come. And so I've got a number of days that God knows, and I don't, this is life under the sun. How do I pursue a life of wisdom and following Jesus and following God in the midst of that? This is the first point I want us to see coming out of it. There it is. The path of wisdom requires us to receive the lessons only sorrow and death can teach us. If we want to pursue a life of true wisdom, of substantial wisdom, that we have to allow the lessons to come into our life that sorrow and death alone can be the teachers of because it is life under the sun. It is part of the existence that we have until Jesus returns. Well, the preacher goes on. I feel like in a lot of ways we, we can maybe glean and discern aspects of wisdom, you know, whether it's, it's through growing up in the church or being students of the Word, listening to the voice of God and say, ah, oh, that's, yeah, that, there is wisdom in this. Um, or maybe it's our own education or just kind of like the hard knocks of life. We, we discern different principles. Uh, or maybe we found like a particular tool or personality test or program or diet plan or something that's kind of like, this helps me to dial in on reality. Like this is the way the, the human body works or human personality works or human relationships work. And, 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 and I, can, I can kind of take that. We all do this. Even the, the goodness of, of God's word and his wisdom. We, we can take that and, and, and try to manipulate it into this tool that we, we use to try to extract benefits from God. So it's not life 
in reliance upon God, governed by his voice, but we take kind of the, the package of wisdom that we can get from or the benefit of, I don't know, growing up in the church, like hearing sermons over time. You're just like, okay, but I kind of know how life works now. Don't know that I need God per se, but I've got like this basket of wisdom that I can use and I can extract the benefits out of life and I can use it for a reputation with other people. And we can do this with anything. We do it with really good things of, of God's word. We do it with different ways of analyzing culture or personality or our own selves or our own field that we're in. God has made this beautiful world full of, of insight and of glory. And in our sin, we take the goodness of that and then try to manipulate God into giving us the benefits and the blessings of this life. Well, look with me in verse 15. In my vain life, such an optimistic guy, in my vain life, in my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. He's basically saying, like, we can have our different programs of, of wisdom, and it doesn't, doesn't have this, like, A equals B. Equal, you know, it's not often the way that it works. Often it works the, the reverse of what we anticipate. Verse 16, be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? You know, he, he's not saying here, hey, just, just get a little bit of sin in your life. You know, it's like we're probably just too, too uptight about the whole, like, morality thing. And so if you can just, like, introduce a little bit of sin um, and loosen up, then you can, you can be okay. He's talking about this approach that, you know, the way to, to even translate this would be don't be overrighteous or overwise. Uh, kind of this idea that, that we take our, our, our ability to, to do good things in this life or understand the reality around us or to, to have a reputation of wisdom and to, to structure our lives in a certain way, and then we take that to then gain something from this life irrespective of God in the midst of it. Now, we're actually trying to, to kind of game the system a little bit and what we've gleaned and what we've learned. And he's saying, you're, you're just going to destroy yourself. If for no other reason, it's going to force you to be dishonest about the ways that you don't even live into your own ideals. The places that you're not even able to fulfill the best of your own system, you feel like, bah, but to, to maintain this thing, to maintain this game, I actually have to, to kind of pretend my way through. I need to, to kind of, for people to, to approve of me and accept me, like this is how they know me. And we're not able to be, dis, to be honest with ourselves that we have to live in a false reality. And we spiral from there. Verse 17, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? He's like, okay, so the other option is just reject wisdom altogether. It's either turn it into this manipulative tool with others and with God or just reject it altogether. It's like neither is a good ditch to fall in. Verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in, this, in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. He's saying, hey, an honest take on reality is that as much as we may try, we all fall into sin. He's like, hey, you get so frustrated that your employee or your friend or whoever else was, was saying something negative about you, gossiping about you. It's like, okay, yeah, you can address that. And your heart, if you can be honest, knows that you do the same thing. 
or, or, or fill in some other area of, of, of sin or frustration um, that you know, we, we breaks down relationships or whatever else. Like when we're honest, we're, we're prone to the same types of things. So let's own our frailty. Let's own the fact of our own sinfulness and come before the God who, who knows all of that and is able to receive us not rejecting his voice, but also not trying to take righteousness and wisdom and how people receive us as kind of this tool to leverage benefit. So what's his point here? First, I want to read another quote from Ian Provan. You can read Dwayne Garrett later. It says this, the crucial thing to be remembered that the universe, about the universe is that God has created it. Wisdom is not a key that can be used in independence of the creator to unlock the secrets of the universe, to shape existence after moral desires, and to control life. Although certain ways of being and behaving are wiser than others, and in general tend toward life rather than death, yet in the end we must remember that the universe is not a predictable machine, but a personally governed and complex space. Wisdom is not magic. God is not an object to be manipulated nor does God's world belong to human beings. So how might we summarize what he's saying in this section? The path of wisdom neither rejects discernible reality nor turns it into a manipulative tool over God and others. The way out of this, the path of wisdom is acknowledging both sides of it. Yes, we listen to the voice of wisdom, things we can learn and glean and study and, and appropriate in different, in different ways in our lives. But we do it recognizing the personal God who is sovereign over all of it. He is the author of every facet of our lives, and we must receive all of it from him. So wisdom is good. It's worth pursuing. He's tr trying to kind of chart this path for us of, of ways to go about it and not to go about it. And then he gets to verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I'll be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart. He's turning his whole self to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So here he is. He's saying, hey, wisdom is good. I've kind of walked through the corridors of life and I've tried to pull different things and I'm trying to piece it together. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to try to learn as much as I can. How do I walk wisely in this life? What, what does it mean to follow the God who has made me in life under the sun when so much feels like it's vapor? How do I do it? He took the path seriously. Verse 26. And I found something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken in by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. He's saying, I, I, I took the quest seriously. Like, I'm really trying to figure it out. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to come in with humility and ask the questions and, and piece together bit by bit, put, put this worldview together. Really trying to do it honestly. But what did he find? That the human heart is a labyrinth, this complex maze of, of scheming, and we just find different ways to, to deceive ourselves and deceive other people. And he saw it in his own heart, being enticed by 
uh, you know, really the, the woman here in, in, in wisdom literature, so often representative, you know, we have, especially you see in Proverbs 5, of lady wisdom and lady folly. So personified in these two women of, of a path of, of pleasing God and pursuing God, and there's a path of, uh, of deceit, often consistent with sexual temptation, but includes so much more than that. The lusts of our heart, they get, they get tapped into and drawn out and we begin pursuing these different things. When he got honest in the pursuit of wisdom, of taking life seriously as it is, he found in his own heart and he found the lives of other people. Oh, the scheme of things. The ways in which our hearts deceive ourselves, we deceive ourselves. The, you start diving into your own story, your own family of origin, why you do the things that you do, the different things that come out of different situations. You start naming those things and being honest. It's a labyrinth and it's disorienting. And then you, you recognize that every other person you interact with has their own history, their own family of origin, their own things, their own temptations. And he's like, man, this pursuit of wisdom is hard. And in fact, I don't think I've found anybody who does it well. He's like, maybe that one guy. He's like, okay, so out of a thousand guys that I know, I don't know, I'm just estimating, maybe like a thousand, uh, I found maybe one who kind of gets it. You know, remember, he's talking like his own experience. He's like, okay, I know, I know less women and I've interacted with, I haven't found anybody there, but basically like out of the whole of humanity, he's like, I found one guy who maybe kind of gets it. But he's saying that in the same breath as verse 20. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And then in verse 29 where he ends this section. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So maybe you find yourself, it's like, I really want to like, pursue God. I want to live a life of wisdom, and I'm trying to like, do it well. It's going to leave us confused and hurting. That's the third thing I want us to see. The path of wisdom will leave you tempted, bewildered, and disillusioned. I mean, notice where he ends. He's like, yeah, God made us good. He actually established humanity in the garden as originally good. But we've corrupted the whole thing by the schemes of our own hearts. We've taken the created things and, and worked against the rule of God, and so we want to rule for ourselves. So what do we do in the face of that? Can anyone get it right? You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a somber reality. And maybe you, you sit in this space even now, and you're like, my pursuit of the good life, my pursuit of wisdom, me trying to like build a worldview or a career or a family or whatever else, I just like, I feel the vaporous nature of it. I keep grasping, but I'm never truly satisfied. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes is inviting us into that and saying, exactly. That's kind of the way it goes, life under the sun. But we know, we know that what he says in verse 20 is actually not entirely true. We, we know where the story goes for the old covenant people of God. We know how God took on human flesh and came to us in the person and work of Jesus. So when he says in verse 20, there's not a single righteous person on earth who does good and never sins, we say, actually, there, there is one. There is one who has come to us, and his name is Jesus. God looked upon humanity. He looked upon the human experience, and he had mercy upon us. 
He, he knew that he made us good and that we corrupted the whole thing. He knows the scheme of our hearts. He knows the labyrinth and the deceit and, and all the different ways that we run from him. And he had compassion upon us and he pursued us, taking on human flesh, entering the human story and the human experience, the full spectrum of human emotion and all that we experience, life under the sun. Jesus came not just afraid of sorrow, but came as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knows the particulars of what you walk through even now, in this season, in this moment, where you sit. And he came knowing that the purpose of his life, the mission of his life of coming to earth was to not run from death, but to, to walk directly into it, to offer up his life, to hand his life over as a ransom, as a payment, as a sacrifice, as a substitute for humanity, all those who would look to him and trust in him. But he did not stay dead, crucified on that tree, wearing our shame, our sin, our guilt. He conquered all of it, and he came out the other side of the grave alive. He is our resurrected Lord. He is our risen King who has conquered the sin, the sorrow, the death, the pain, the disorientation, the confusing. He is the wise one who walked the path listening to the voice of the Father took on what only we, that, that we actually deserve, but he took it on willingly on our behalf so that we may be invited into life, life to the full, to walk the path of wisdom with the only wise one, the God who has made us. And that's the last thing that I want us to see. Jesus alone is the righteous one who satisfies our aching quest for wisdom. We want the good life. Nothing wrong with that. There are a lot of good things in this life. When we demand from the created things what only God can give, it's only vapor. It will only leave us frustrated, confused, disappointed, disillusioned again and again and again. We'll cycle back through over and over and over again until we come and receive the invitation from Jesus, the righteous one who is also the only wise one, who suffered, who died, who rose again and said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and find rest. Come to me and find life and life to the full and life eternally. So what invitation stands for you? Where is he knocking at the door of your life, of your heart? What circumstances are kind of pushing you toward him right now? And will you receive his voice? Will you receive that invitation to see the face of Jesus, to behold his work, and allow him to receive you into his love, which is the love of the Father. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, so often we, we may know the right things uh, to say or to believe or to recite, but honestly, a lot of times they just don't feel true. And you know that. You know the disconnect that we often feel between what, what we hear and receive in your word, what Jesus, who we, who we know you to be, what you've accomplished, but then our, our life under the sun, it, it doesn't feel to be actual. And so I ask right now that by your spirit, you would speak to each one of us. Yeah, would, you, would you tune our ears to, to hear the voice of our Father? that whatever heartache, 
we're experiencing right now, whatever prolonged season of, of difficulty and, and just being disillusioned that people experience, and whatever season of, of joy or prosperity or enjoyment, and, and, and recognizing that for all of us, there's always some sort of mix of those. Would your, would your voice be so clear? And, and we have the, just the, the posture and the sensitivity to receive what you have for us. Now we're confident that you see us, that you know us, that you love us, that you're for us, that you're at work, that you're author of all of it. It's not for us to know the why. It's not for us to be able to figure out all the details. It is for us to come into your presence, plead your promises, lay ourselves before you, name reality, get honest with our emotions, and move forward in a humble, dependent trust upon the God who has never failed us. Would you give us that gift even now? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to step into a time of communion here in a minute. Um, so communion servers, if you want to come forward, grab the elements. Uh, before we do, though, we, we've been reciting this together uh, corporately as a part of our Ecclesiastes series. So if you would, stand with me, and we'll, we'll read this together uh, before we step into communion. Read this with me. Father in heaven, free us from our exhausting efforts to seek satisfaction under the sun. Help us to trust in your presence and walk in your ways, even when we are disoriented by the pains and perplexities of life. Increase our passion to live for Jesus, who alone offers lasting joy and unshakable hope. And let our joy and hope in Christ shine like light in the darkness, such that others would be drawn to your saving love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.